Last week, Elder Paul spoke to us on a very sensitive topic in Mark chapter 10, talking about essentially divorce and what Jesus, what God thinks about divorce, and <clears throat> making the statement that God, as a perfect, perfect standard, hates divorce. So it's not the ideal that he would want for any one of us. The reason being, because it's so damaging. And most people, if you talk, who have been divorced will say that it's painful and a damaging time in their life. However, divorce is one of those things that happens, has happened for centuries and continues to happen. And even in the Bible, we see that because of Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, God divorces Israel. He removes his presence from them. And so, in a sense, there is uh, a precedent there where an unfaithful wife or husband uh, will and should be divorced because unfaithfulness is the point where the departure of trust and love and relationship falls apart. Now, there is, of course, a way back from unfaithfulness. Uh, but it's a hard road back, and that is our forgiveness and the building of trust again. But that is a choice that only both partners must make. It can't be imposed upon a marriage. Uh, it is something that is costly and difficult, and it's not everybody can accept that. So Paul brought excellent teaching, in my humble opinion, on divorce. The fall of that, if you missed it, that's what you should go and listen to, because I think it was very helpful and truthful. And then he closed with um, this opportunity where the children came to Jesus and were um, being resisted by the disciples. And Jesus says, no, let them come because the kingdom belongs to such as these. So we pick it up now, chapter 10. And I want to entitle this talk, The Upside-Down Kingdom, a phrase that's been used before. But what Paul gave us last week was to examine our attitudes in the light of being like children. Children in the first century were in a low position, unheard, you know, not necessarily... Uh, didn't have any voice, not influential. You know, children generally uh, are being prepared for their potential to be become realized in the latter years. So right now, we don't expect too much of children. They are a humble uh, proportion of society, and they are lowly, they are needy, they are vulnerable. And in some senses... Jesus is expressing here that there's a quality in the innocence of children that believers need in order to enter the kingdom of God. I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not see the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So how has your homework been this week? Homework being the stuff that we do away from church. How has your homework been? How has your attitude dependence on God been this week? We're going to continue with the theme of humility and servanthood and examining our attitudes with Mark because now he presents an alternative 
example. Instead of a humble child, we have a mature male who is, in his own eyes, keeps the Torah, the law of God, and he's wealthy. So, listen to this. We hear it many times, but often in our conversations and in our attitudes to others, we still miss it. Paradoxically, then, the kingdom of God is for the least powerful, the least wealthy, and the least influential. If you have no power, no wealth, and no influence, you are more likely to enter the kingdom of God. It is the most powerful and the most wealthy and the most influential world that will have greater difficulty entering the kingdom of God. Children who approach Jesus are examples of those who are more likely to enter the kingdom. Therefore, children in their heart and attitudes are role models that we must imitate. How do we do that? How do we maintain responsibility, which children don't tend to have, with a childlike attitude? We must enter the kingdom without caution or risk assessment. You know how children are just like spontaneous and excited about everything? Like one of the reasons like communities like to have children is because they bring life to the community. By the time you get to our age, we're pretty much dead donkeys. You know, we've been beaten by life, you know, the hardships, relationships, marriages, children. You know, we are, we are, we are our feet on, in reality. And reality is harsh and difficult. Children aren't there yet. But their heart, their spontaneity, their willingness just to go headlong into anything, in part, is what God is asking us to maintain within our own hearts. That ability to, to run to him without measuring the cost all the time. So let's read from 1017. We're going to take each section as it comes, but they're all connected. Mark 10, verse 17, and he was setting out on his journey, uh, Jesus. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In significant contrast to the people of the children, here is a wealthy, wealthy man asking for assurance. I want to be in heaven. I want to be where you are. I want eternal life. And intentions seem good, right? I mean, who doesn't ask that question? How do I get to heaven? But confession of his own goodness blinds him. All these I have kept. Ah, you're a good person, are you? Jesus says, don't even call me. So you're sitting here today, this morning. Put your hands up if you're good. No, you're not going to. Oh, yes, we, we have one. We have one who says I'm good. The challenge to our ability to be good is um, the fact that the assumption of our own goodness blinds us to our need of Christ. It fills us, can fill us with pride. It can fill us with a sense of, well, I'm doing enough. And can we ever say that we're doing enough? It's a tension between the work of God and the work of our responsibility. So this Torah observant man, you could say in modern day terms, this churchgoer, so this man who's attended church his whole life is more devoted to his wealth than entering the kingdom of God. And so that asks us a question, what are we more devoted to than Christ? Even if we've been going to church our whole life, it doesn't mean that we're getting it right. That's the lesson. The rich man went away sad, even though Jesus loved him. Biblically, though, let's balance this, it would be inconsistent to say we must be poor to enter the kingdom. Does God just not like rich people? Is he jealous of rich people? Biblical narratives unequivocally describe Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as extraordinarily wealthy men, as were kings after them like David and Solomon. So wealth is not the problem. What the problem is, is what wealth does to us. I want to win the lottery. Why do you want to win the lottery? Because your life will be easier. No, Pastor Dave, I want to give all my money to the church. Well, let's see about that. When you win the lottery. Uh, a guy once said, St. Bernard of uh, Clairvaux, I think, say a French abbot, he said, to see man humbled under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. And Tim Keller says this, money makes fools of us into believing that we are smart about everything. It creates pride. It takes you to the place where you will say, who is the Lord and why do I need him? Echo in Proverbs 30. Who is the Lord and why do I need him? Money makes us self-sufficient. It makes us confident. 
it makes it builds us into something that's not sustainable and so when i say ask the question are you wealthy you might go well you know i'm not as wealthy as that person but i'm not as poor as that person in this it's a non-question what you need to really understand is what are you unwilling to give up to enter the kingdom of god That's, I mean, if you're going to stay awake at night thinking about anything, that's something to think about. And the disciples then begin to wonder, hey, what about us? Are we going to enter the kingdom? And the truth is that we are all going to fail to enter the kingdom of God, but for the grace of God. This is the basic Christian theology, of course, of salvation by God's action alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Do I need to read it? But I will, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one can boast. You can't boast in your goodness. You can only boast in the goodness of Christ. Who himself said, don't call me good. You see the humility there? You see the humility there? People say to me, not very often, but sometimes, <laughs> you're a good pastor. And when they say that, the immediate thought in my mind is, you don't know me. You don't know me. You, you enjoy what you might receive from me, but you don't know me. So you can't call me a good anything. If you knew me, Perhaps my wife is the best one to make judgments about my ability to be a pastor. She would say, called to be a pastor. She wouldn't say, you're a good pastor. <laughs> but we could say that about everything in life, right? That's not, I'm not trying to put myself down. I'm trying to be real about our brokenness. Because if we're not real about our brokenness, then we're setting ourselves up for a fall. So then when we treat, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how will you said this before, how you interact with waiting staff in restaurants, in cafes. These things are important giveaways about what's going on inside of you and your own ability to be full of pride. The tension is we cannot enter the kingdom of God without God's action. But at the same time, to enter the kingdom of God there's a cost for each one of us to pay. And so we can, we can more accurately say this, that the salvation is both God and me at work together for the same purpose. In this context, the rich man, the cost of Jesus is to give up our pride and status and to give up the own, our own sense of goodness. You're not good enough to enter the kingdom of God by your own works. None of you. I am not. None of us are. It makes us equal. None of us are good enough. Don't care how long you've been in church. Don't care how big your ministry is. Don't care how good your prayer life is. None of that is good enough but for the work of Christ. You can say, well... Is all this work necessary then? Is it even worth doing all this work? All this like church stuff and all the additional stuff I do to try and help people. You know, this stuff that the Bible talks about. Is it worth it? 
Well, it is when you look at verses 29 and 30. Whether you feel now that you're being repaid or not, your sacrificial life before Christ can never be more than you will be repaid back for. And Jesus says, even now, what does it mean to the disciples? Even now you're going to be repaid. What does that mean? It means that within the community of faith, you will have fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. Jesus himself said that. Who is my father, mother, brother? It is those who obey my father's will. He put his spiritual family ahead of his blood family, so to speak. And in the life to come, eternal life. There is the fullness of your salvation yet to come. Even though you will have benefits now, you will also have persecutions now. But in life to come, there is only benefits. And you may not feel like that. And this is a big thing for Christians because we live in this individualistic, I feel I want to do this. I feel I want to be that. I feel I should have this kind of age. Your feelings have to be secondary to the truth of the scriptures. I say that to somebody almost every week. The scriptures must be more true than how you feel. Because they're certainly going to last longer than your feelings will. And so the rewards of the spiritual life, that is to obey Christ, that is to be in the word, that is to be prayerful, that is to love one another, that is to be neighborly, that is to be lowly, to be humble. The rewards of the spiritual life are never in plain sight. That's why largely the world ignores them, because it can't see the reward in front of them. But the spiritual life is a reward. It doesn't feel like, at the moment, if you have a, a, a tyrannical boss, it doesn't feel like that the first will be last, because your boss is always getting his own way. If you have a difficult relationship, you're in a difficult relationship, and the other person is always ruling it over you. It doesn't feel like they're one day going to last because you're continually having to put yourself in last place to please them. But this is the teaching of the upside down kingdom. And now Jesus will tell us how he's going to put himself last. From verse 32. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Can you imagine having such foreknowledge of your suffering. Can you imagine that? This is Jesus expressing incredible courage. Have you ever had something keep you up at night because of something that you're going to face the next day? And what you were going to face, is there anything near, anything like a flogging, a mocking, a spitting, a beating, a crucifixion, a dying. Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem with this foreknowledge. We're preconditioned to avoid, avoid pain, flight or fight, uh, 
instinct that we have within us, in us. And mercifully, God does not give us foreknowledge of our suffering. It generally comes upon us. If I knew the place and time of my death, I would never go there. But Jesus, knowing his bending doom, heads towards it. You see the difference in goodness there between me and the man who says, don't call me good. See the absolute gulf that there is between me and him. Jesus perfectly lives out sacrificial attitudes that's necessary to enter the upside down kingdom, humbly accepting his fate for all of us. And James and John come, the sons of Zebedee, and they come up to him and say, Teacher, we want, to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that our prayer life? Jesus, do this, and I'll believe in you. Oh, yeah. Jesus, do this, and I'll be the best person. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Okay. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And, he's, and he said to them, he already knew this, of course, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. How does that speak into our life? You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It's already written. It's already written. And when the ten heard it, the rest of them, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Paul made a good point. I was talking to Paul about this uh, uh, last week. And he said, maybe they're indignant because they want to be the first to ask for that. They want to do the left and the right. Maybe they weren't indignant because they were thinking, this is the, why, why are you even asking that? Don't you get his teaching on being humble? They probably weren't indignant about that. They were indignant because they wanted to be first. Hypothetically. And, so, and Jesus called uh, them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Who wants to be in charge? Who wants to be in charge? Put your hands up. Who wants to be in charge? Who wants the authority? Who wants to tell people what to do? Put your hand up. <laughs> it's great reading these verses and then exposing our hearts to them, isn't it? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John, tut tut. They all express our desire for honor, power, and prestige. Everything that the world has, we want. Pop idol. Celebrity, whatever it is. We want that. We pretend that we don't, but we do. Because we have this innate 
in us of want to be loved and to be popular. There's something right about that, but there's also something terribly twisted when we have it without boundaries. There is honor, there is power, there is prestige in the kingdom of God, but it's for those who do not seek it. To have kingdom importance is to humble yourself now. Too late when you die. Get to heaven and go, look, Jesus, I know that I had some fairly proud moments, but now I'm feeling really humble. Let me in. To have kingdom importance is to humble yourself now. Jesus teaches that the kingdom is inverted in terms of power status. We are not to be like the great ones who desire to rule over people. One of the biggest difficulties of being a, a pastor or a boss or somebody in charge, particularly I'd say a spiritual leader, is the temptation to manipulate and control people. Huge problem. Huge problem. Because... The scriptures are so directive. And people willingly come and ask me for help and advice. And it's so challenging to know where to balance help with my manipulation and my desires for people. It's the same with prophecy, personal prophecy, dangers of manipulation and control. If somebody gives you a word of prophecy, you should test it always. Is that from the Lord? Does it marry it with scriptures? Does it feel right? Or is there something about it that you just don't feel at peace about? Everybody that ministers to you is just another human being with the same problems of sin. And anybody that offers you a word from the Lord, you must see that first. This isn't some high almighty person who's seated at the left or right of Jesus. This is just another person trying to help. And they might be wrong. And they might be right. Test everything. Don't despise prophecy. Test everything. Very important that you don't get damaged in church. Therefore, we must seek opportunities to serve one another without the intention to manipulate or control. Jesus then becomes our perfect example of both childlike faith, as Paul brought to us last week, in humility and his willingness to sacrifice, to sacrifice privilege and wealth to become least. Tim Keller makes an excellent point. Who is the rich young ruler in the story, the true rich young ruler in the story is Jesus, of course. Because Jesus has more wealth than any one of us. And he gave up more than any one of us to come and serve us here on earth. The rich young ruler is just playing at it. He just has worldly wealth. And he was never in heaven before. He's just a human being. He's a nobody. But Christ, the real rich young ruler, came and gave up everything for our sake. So the disciples need to imitate the examples of their Savior so that they too can be great. Now, to finish with, we have what seems to be an odd appearance of a healing. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Maus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And many rebuked him, remember, a little bit like the children before, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What has this got to do with humility? Why this healing at the end of this chapter, which has been so clearly themed? Well, simply put, Jesus is acting out exactly what he's just taught his disciples. He's going to the lowest member of society and he's given up time and attention and love and care for somebody that nobody cares about. What do we do when we're busy? I'm guilty of this when I'm busy. You catch me at the wrong moment on a Sunday when everything's going wrong, like the technology is falling apart. You come to me then with your pastoral issues. Don't do that. I'm in techno world. I'm being the techno savior of the church. And I don't care about your problems at that point. All I care about is the live stream and getting some sound in this room. Because I'm human. Because I can only do one thing at a time. Um, I'm human and male. (laughs) But Jesus... Here he is on his way to Jerusalem to face his death with this. I mean, what would you be thinking? What would you be doing if you got this going on in your head? I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. What would be going on in your head? Would you have time to minister to other people at this point in your life? Jesus is doing his homework. I don't want to do my homework. I haven't got time to do my homework. It doesn't make me happy. Homework makes me sad. Jesus is doing his homework. He takes time in the busyness of the crowds. He hears this voice crying out to him. Everyone's on to him. Shut that guy up. In some churches... Pastors have bodyguards to keep people away from them. Great churches. <laughs> Great churches. I wish that I would, um, you know, be enough for one of those churches. But as it is, I'm, I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I wouldn't want that responsibility to have bodyguards to keep people away from me. But Jesus doesn't even have bodyguards. I mean, he, he has people that aren't like bodyguards, but he frustrates them. Bring him here to me. I want to give him some attention. Jesus, do you have more important things to worry about? No, I don't. Because I came for people like blind Bartimaeus. And so we conclude the chapter. The, the son of David, the anointed king of kings, Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, and out 
the Beatitudes opens the eyes of a blind man, concluding his ministry from Galilee right the way down to the journey to the south, now turning his eyes towards Jerusalem and will enter the upside-down kingdom crucified on a cross. That's his entry point into the kingdom. Crucifixion. So, what is our homework this week? Our homework is this. And this is a suggestion. I'm not trying to control you or tell you what to do. This is a suggestion. Why don't you choose somebody in the community, not necessarily in church, who is in need, and give them a day of your time. And do for them whatever they ask. Shopping, take them out for a coffee, just spend time in prayer with them. Maybe they don't want prayer. Maybe they're not a believer. To do something that will bless them. And nobody is going to know about it. Just you, them, and your Heavenly Father. You don't have to post it on Facebook. Guess what I did today? Look how good I am. Pastor Dave, I did my homework. Can I now preach, please? It's a challenge, isn't it? It never stops being a challenge, this humility. The danger is that we choose the alternative. The danger is that we lack humility rather than we show too much of it. I don't know that many people that show too much humility. I have plenty of people that lack it, including myself. Let's pray. Father, your word is uncomfortably instructive. When we take it seriously and when we literally apply it verse by verse, it, it, it asks some difficult questions of our character. But I'd rather, Lord, that we have a few uncomfortable moments together now and be prepared for then than not be prepared for our entry point and to have it easy now. Help us, Lord, as we move on from these verses into the next chapter. In Jesus' name, amen.